Afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Disaster Council. Um, my name is Ann Cronenberg, and it's a pleasure to have you here today in our Emergency Operations Center. Um, I will just jump right into the um, agenda today. We're going to start off with um, Mayor Lee is going to give a, a few remarks for us. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, again, I just wanted to thank all of the agencies for coming together and doing both a celebration and another preparatory uh, work uh, at the 108th anniversary of our 1906 earthquake and see so many people at 5 a.m. That's pretty nice. Um, I also want to say again thank you. We, we did take the opportunity, as, as you saw and read uh, last week, to thank all of you who were part of the response, the great response to the Mission Bay fires. There was a multitude of agencies that responded and worked well together, and uh, these are things that we have practiced doing over and over again, and uh, give me the opportunity to uh, continue thanking everyone uh, for working all together, and uh, we, I think, made an emphasis uh, that uh, uh, both firefighters and officers, but also everybody that works behind uh, these things to make them happen. All the different agencies we are able to recognize from the parking control officers to the 911 dispatch to people working here and others, that coordination is extremely important. Uh, I also uh, want to say that we do take advantage of uh, learning lessons and uh, that, uh, that became, I think, a very good connection for the public to understand why infrastructure is so important. And that is, I think, that Link is leading our efforts to the Easter bond uh, this June, and I fully expect that the public will understand that. And, but we won't rest uh, on those. We will continue pushing it because we have a lot at stake if we don't get that passed. Uh, but it will also lead to the continuing, I think, positive dialogue that public safety uh, for all of us and emergency response, all of that needs infrastructure investment and support, and we practice it every time. So. All of you here in this room, again, thank you for uh, being a part of that uh, constant message. And I want to just, again, congratulate uh, DEM, too, because they're always, uh, this is their priority. And so they get us all together, and they're constantly uh, advancing on the times, and whether it's uh, 72 SF, did I say it right, or is it SF 72? It's SF 72, Fine. close. <laughs> i got to catch up. Uh, with, uh, with all the uh, ways that we communicate with all of the different uh, parts of our community. And we are a growing uh, city and a growing region, so we've got to accommodate for that and also for the next generation that doesn't know what's gone on and what we've trained for in the last couple of generations. Uh, and then, of course, tell everybody to uh, watch the movie Noah because tsunami's coming. But anyway, uh, again, I want to say thank you to everybody, and uh, we'll work on everything from climate change to our uh, seawall uh, uh, challenges to uh, all of the things that we need to continue doing, and then we'll pay attention to the unfortunate disasters to happen around the world in our region and learn those lessons, incorporate them into what we do, and uh, then have good, positive discussions with our public about what we need to continue protecting them and uh, build for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. 
Uh, we're indeed very lucky in San Francisco to have a mayor like uh, Mayor Lee who really understands emergency preparedness and response and is so supportive. Thank you. Um, I wanted to talk today just real briefly about the 800 megahertz radio replacement project. I think all of you know first responders in particular um, rely on the 800 radio, megahertz radios for day-to-day -day operations as well as for emergencies. Um, DEM is leading the charge to get the radios replaced. I believe that um, some of you or maybe all of you know that the radios are now 14 years old. The average lifespan of a, a radio, an 800 megahertz radio, is about 10 years, so we're well over the, the lifespan. Those of us who use um, cell phones on a daily basis generally change them. I don't know where mine is. I was going to hold it up. But, you know, every couple years you get a new, a new plan and you change your cell phone. So it's really an important project. We at DEM have hired um, federal engineering to develop a full system replacement plan and budget. And the fir firm will begin interviewing key staff at public safety agencies about the system in June and July. So be expecting a call. Um, we should be complete by that should be complete by the end of 2014 with the new system in place by 2018. This was one of um, Mayor Lee's priorities last year during the budget process. And again, we so appreciate your support. It's it's vital for our first responders. Wanted to mention that in the, we got our funding allocation for the 2014 Urban Area Security Initiative. That's Department of Homeland Security funding. It's about 0.5% over last year's um, Bay Area Regional Allocation, which is this year $27.4 million. So this money does not come just to San Francisco, but to the Bay Area region. Uh, UASI is a regional anti-terrorism um, grant for high-threat, high-density urban areas, and we use that money in San Francisco for equipment, for training, um, exercising, and for personnel, so it's really important to us, and we were happy that the, the grant did not get cut this year. DEM recently completed work with 24 city departments to update the city's hazard uh, mitigation plan. The HMP describes our city's natural and human-made hazards and identifies mitigation and implementation measures. This year we added critical city-owned assets located outside the city, such as Hetch Hetchy, um, SFO, San Bruno Jail, as well as added hazard profiles for pandemic and climate change. Uh, just a week and a half ago here at uh, DEM, we announced a partnership with the private online neighborhood social network Nextdoor. We're really excited about this. Nextdoor provides a platform that allows neighbors to share information and resources during a disaster. And you'll be seeing later today DEM's new SF72 website. We have the connection to Nextdoor, and I think that you will find it uh, very informative and fascinating as we move forward. We're very excited about this. I've listed on my report our recent activations and the planned activations we have coming up. As we do every year, we'll be activating for Beta Breakers, the Pride Parade, Fleet Week, and of course, New Year's Eve. That concludes my, my brief report. 
Um, I now am going to ask Mary Ellen Carroll from the Public Utilities Commission to give us an update on the RIM fire. Thank you, Mary Ellen. Um, this is a, a schematic of our, uh, our uh, Hetch Hetchy water system, and most of you hopefully are familiar with it. The red circle right there um, is generally the area of the fire. So you can see why this, while this incident happened 200 miles away from San Francisco, it had potential huge impact on San Francisco itself. Um, and those are our, our three reservoirs, Hetch Hetchy, Lake Eleanor, and Cherry Lake, and much of our gener uh, power, uh, excuse me, hydroelectric power generation. In addition, there's a little place called Camp Mather that's sort of right in the middle of that circle. So um, we were really concerned. When the fire started on August 17th, it burned through, wasn't 100% contained until October 25th. Um, over 5,000 fire service personnel responded to this fire. We, just at the PUC, had over 300 people involved in the response. Um, it was the third largest wildfire in, in California and the largest wildfire that Yosemite has ever experienced. Um, it's a little bit hard to see here, but the um, fire just uh, expanded and progressed incredibly quickly. This is the first four days of the fire. So um, the yellow you can see best is the second day. There's actually a smaller green. And by Thursday, we were at that red perimeter. So it was a really out of control situation that we all needed to really respond to quite quickly. So what happened with water during the fire? We're very happy to say that we didn't have any um, negative effect actually on our ability to deliver quality water to our, to our customers, both in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Um, we never had any issue with turbidity, and we were very happy about that. However, when this fire started, we did put contingency plans in place. That included moving as much water from our source uh, upcountry down to our local storage reservoirs, and we were able to do that fairly quickly. What that meant was that we had three to four months of reserve at that moment. We knew if in, in the case that we needed to turn off that source from Hetchy, we were able to do so. In addition, we warmed up our, um, our inner ties, or at least put our partners from Santa Clara Valley Water District and East Bay Mud Utility District on notice should we need to use those inner ties. Um, the, the story about why we didn't have an effect on water really can be illustrated here in this picture. So that blue is Hetch Hetchy Reservoir, and the fire did burn all the way up into the, up until, to the edge of the reservoir. However, a lot of that area is granite, rocky area. The green that you see in the picture is either low or no burn. So we really got fortunate in that we didn't have significant portions of the actual watershed burn, and that really saved us. Um, this is also watershed on the other side, and, and that was super helpful um, that we didn't have effect there. The big um, impact to us was on power. 
So we did um, have, have damages that compromised our electric power generation and distribution system. Um, we had over 20 miles of line that really got burned, and we had some powerhouses and some other facilities. Um, however, again, we didn't have any impact on the municipal customers that receive power, um, and we were able to do that by buying off of the um, market and the banking agreements that we have for power. So um, we didn't have any interruption, and we were actually able to again meet our own municipal load by September 1st, which is really amazing if you um, if you could see what happened up there and how quickly we were able to restore a lot of those lines. So um, part of the what happened during this time is that we responded. So this is like very exciting. This is what happens in operations centers, a bunch of people standing around, right, planning. They're very long days, very tiring. Um, we activated in our headquarters at 525 Golden Gate for almost a month. Um, we were tracking the fire. Again, one of the challenges of this situation is that we were so far away. Um, but luckily, uh, we have an incredible team at Hetch Hetchy Water Power Division, and they were running an incident command post at Moccasin, where we have, um, we, call it, we call it camp, our administration building. We kind of have a little company town up there. And so this is some of the group there. Um, we were, we were um, thrilled to welcome the mayor. I don't know if you see yourself there. Margaret, the woman in the blue, runs our Hetch Hetchy uh, system. And... Um, this is Margaret sort of giving an update to the mayor and, and his group when they came up. The real heroes, however, we feel of this incident were the folks, the, the people out in the field, the folks who went out there um, in really hazardous conditions as soon as they could to clear the way, to assess the damage, and to help us get back online. And these are just a few of the pictures. Um, it was really dirty work. <laughs> One picture I don't have, actually, is of our partners from the fire department, and specifically Chief Tom Saragusa, who really led um, our partnership. We asked um, Chief Hayes-White if she would uh, help us and if we could deploy as a liaison um, some uh, fire chiefs to go up. And it was probably one of, if not one of, the most important decision that we made. And so we were really appreciative of that. And I think many of us feel that Camp Mather is still there because of that decision, and in part a lot of the, that the fire didn't extend beyond where it did in the watershed. Um, so what ended up happening, bottom line, we have over $50 million worth of damage. Um, we are currently in cost recovery, full, full, full mode. Um, we have uh, different types of recovery funding. We have two different types of insurance that we are pursuing. We also have two different kinds of cost recovery government re recovery funds, one through the state and, um, and then, of course, FEMA. We did get a federal disaster declaration, and so we are in the midst of that. We have some lessons learned that we just thought we would share very quickly. On the response side, in general, what we learned is that training and exercise works. So that's good. Good news for you. That's <laughs> good news for us. One of the focuses of our training in the year before the fire was watershed fires, so we got lucky. Um, we partner with CAL FIRE, we talk to them, we train with them about what to do in this instance. And so it really helped us to kind of integrate into the, 
Unified Command and the Fire Command so that we could make sure that the city's interests were represented and that decisions were made that protected the facilities and the infrastructure up there. Um, we also um, should follow your plans. There was instances where we started kind of going off track and then we, we had to quickly go back. So plans are there and they're helpful. Generally, we suggest you follow them. Um, we did a lot of training with field crews, but what we realized is that the management, the support management of a large incident um, is critical, and we uh, need to focus a little bit more on that. So at the Department Operations Center, the field crews are incredible. They do what they need to do. There's never a problem. Um, it's more making sure that at a management level we, we have good ICS training and knowledge. Um, the other thing is transition. We sort of, it's easy to know what to do when everything's burning down, but when it starts to slow down, there's a little bit of like, ah, are we still in this, are we not? The fact is, we, today we're still in an emergency response um, situation with this fire and restoration. So one of the advice I would give to folks is make sure you plan for transition from the beginning. Um, involve your business services. Um, the other big learning from this is that we, depended so heavily on our business service partners. And when I say business services, our finance, our budgeting, IT, HR, and um, purchasing contracts. We always think of the field, the field guys and people in the, in the field fighting directly on the emergency, but you need those support functions even more so during an event. Um, and then the last two, mutual aid. So we have, we have um, fire and law enforcement uses mutual aid on a fairly regular basis. Utilities do not. So while we do have utility agreements and we go to meetings and talk about it all the time, how to trigger mutual aid, we kind of had to figure out in that moment. So if you do have mutual aid agreements, figure out how to use them before the event. And communications, just very important to be able to communicate to your stakeholders to, for us, our wholesale customers, the public, media, et cetera. Um, and then finally, on recovery, uh, there's, this list is not very long now because we are like up to here in recovery right now. Um, but what we're learning is that data management and tracking at the most minutia level is what you need to do. Um, that documentation of what you're doing is incredibly important to be able to recover any sort of funding, whether it's insurance or government um, public assistance. Um, and to that end, we are partnering with the controller's office to develop citywide training on finance and admin and cost recovery that we'll be doing um, July or August of this year. So we are definitely taking the lessons learned and uh, turning those around. But we're going to be in this for some time. We have many projects underway, and uh, the cost recovery we'll be working on for several years. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mary Ellen. That was very informative. Um, our next presentation is by Rob Forrester on uh, the Asiana Airlines crash wrap-up. Welcome, Rob.
Great. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for this uh, opportunity, Mr. Mayor and the Disaster Council, to present some information regarding uh, the crash we had out at the airport back in July and share with you some of our lessons learned and recommendations that we're, we're working on uh, as a result. Working in the aviation industry, while we spend lots and lots of times putting together some pretty detailed emergency planning documentation uh, and exercising those plans, the, one of our biggest goals is to try to get through our careers without ever having to actually put those plans uh, into use. Uh, unfortunately, uh, on July 6th, uh, we had to put those plans into use uh, as a result of the crash of Asiana Flight 214 at the airport. Uh, so on December, or I'm sorry, uh, July 6th, um, I'm sure most of you have seen the footage uh, that was all over television. Uh, we had a Boeing 777 aircraft, large aircraft, uh, which struck the retaining wall on approach to runway 28 left at the airport. Uh, the air, air aircraft hit the ground, spun about 310 degrees in the air, and fortunately landed back um, on its belly uh, just off of runway 28 left. It was after uh, just over a 10-hour flight uh, from Korea. Uh, obviously, the airport, upon the crash happening, ceased all operations immediately. We had a number of first responders. Uh, actually, uh, our airfield safety officers, who are typically out patrolling around, were the first ones to actually make it on the scene uh, ahead of the fire department, uh, who followed shortly behind. Um, but that was something um, that we are looking at our emergency response plans because we hadn't really factored that in. I think in a typical planning scenario, you assume that you're going to have advanced notice, you're going to know an aircraft coming in, have some problems, give our firefighting folks a chance to get out into their staging positions and actually be the first ones there. Uh, so that was a, a little twist that we're incorporating into some of our plans now. Uh, as a result, obviously our airport emergency operations center was activated. Um, this emergency operations center uh, was also activated as a result of the crash. There was 307 passengers and crew that were on board the aircraft and you know, as horrible it is, as it is, when I think everyone saw that video, the fact that 304 of those 307 passengers survived the crash um, was really miraculous. And it goes a lot, I think, to say in a little bit of luck in the way that it happened, um, but also uh, some great planning and efforts by uh, particularly the fire department staff that were out there um, uh, responding to the aircraft. We had 189 uh, individuals that were transported to hospitals around the Bay Area. Uh, obviously, our uh, multi-casualty uh, plan was put into place. We had uh, mutual aid response uh, both from the city here and from San Mateo County that responded per the plan to the airport to provide additional support. And overall, uh, big picture, our plan worked. We have an emergency procedures manual. We're required to have one by the FAA, uh, and everything for the most part worked um, as we had envisioned it to. Uh, I'll go over some uh, recommendations that were given to us on ways that we can enhance some of those procedures, um, but overall, uh, we were, were happy with the way the response went. Once the initial response uh, was over, uh, we quickly began to um, devise a way to get all of those first responders together to capture what had happened uh, and develop some recommendations on how we can improve. Uh, 
we decided to bring in a third party to assist us in that effort. Uh, so we brought in a consultant from the outside to help us facilitate um, an after-action debriefing. And because of the size and the complexity of this, uh, we made the decision in working with the consultant to divide it up into several phases. Um, the first thing that we did, and we felt it was very important, was instead of diving right into the details of it, was to have an initial meeting, bring together particularly those first responders and recognize them and the fantastic job that they, gave, that they did, and also allow them to share their stories with, with each other and with folks that were involved in the incident. And we felt that was um, critical, those, those first responders. Um, it was a, a traumatic experience for a lot of them, and being able to have that opportunity to share that experience with others that had gone through that, we felt really helped them um, in that process before we really got into the details. So after we completed that, uh, we went into the first of our uh, three-phase debriefing processes, which focused on that initial response phase. Um, the next phase that we uh, looked at was the recovery phase. After that initial response phase was over, the process to get the aircraft cleared off of the runway and get back to normal operations. Uh, and then the final phase that we um, discussed separately was the medical and family assistance uh, processes um, because there were some areas in there that we really felt that we could improve upon um, for future planning, and we wanted to make sure that we gave that um, enough attention um, in its own debriefing to handle that. Uh, we utilized the uh, Homeland Security Exercise Evaluation Program process the facilitator did, uh, which really helped make sure that we covered all of those uh, eight core capabilities in our debriefing process. We had over 120 participants um, in the different uh, debriefing phases um, and sessions that we conducted. Um, and again, the goal of that was to focus on continuous improvement, uh, document lessons learned uh, moving forward, and uh, get those firsthand experiences uh, that we had. We also had, because you know, fortunately in our industry in aviation, there aren't a whole lot of aircraft accidents, which is a really good thing. Um, but what it doesn't, it, it doesn't give you a lot of opportunity to, to learn from real life experiences. So a lot of what we develop our plans off of are uh, hypothetical situations. So we did have a lot of interest uh, from other airports on how we handled this situation and, and what we learned from that. So we had airports from all over the country um, that came out and sat with us and went over some of our lessons learned. Uh, some immediate findings. Uh, first of all, on the positive side, uh, one of the biggest things that came out of that those debriefings was the fact of the commitment to the staff, those first responders that were out there, and also um, the relationships. Almost everyone that that spoke, um, especially in that initial kickoff session, um, spoke about the the reason they felt things went so well in that initial response was because the folks that were out there knew each other from going through um, drills, the daily briefings. Those key responders see each other on a daily basis. Uh, there was mechanisms in place where uh, everyone knew who each other were, and that made it uh, much easier to coordinate efforts uh, when this accident happened and they had a real crisis that they had to deal with. They weren't, they, they were comfortable with each other. They had seen them, they knew who these people were, and that was a really um, positive thing. Uh, unified command uh, was put into to place at the crash site. Obviously, we have a, a lot of folks that are involved in that, but fire department obviously taking the lead but working in a unified command role worked well. Uh, 
Um, obviously, we talked about the commitment, um, the recovery operation. Once we, we had the initial response phase completed, um, the fact that we got the cro two crossing runways open within four hours um, was really a huge um, accomplishment. Um, and full airport operations back within six days. Sounds like a, a lot of time, but when you look at what we had to deal with working with the NTSB, um, all of the entities that had to come together to get that uh, last runway open in a safe manner and operational within six days was uh, really something that was um, fantastic and we're really proud of and that was recognized. Our recommendations uh, from those debriefing uh, were put together by our consultant into a final report. Uh, they were broken down into several categories uh, similar to the, the sessions, the response phase, recovery phase, and medical and family assistance. Uh, so I'll move, move through these uh, fairly quickly. Um, some of the recommendations that we had was uh, to better, better define the role of the airport EOC in working with its relationships both with downtown and San Mateo. Um, so we um, have already reached out and done some of that. Um, utilization of Web EOC is something that uh, we didn't fully utilize and um, we've gone through some training with the staff here at DEM who's assisting us in coming up to speed to better utilize that tool to communicate information um, and also uh, better defining in our emergency procedures what the defined rules of the EOCs are to make that process um, a little smoother in the future. Um, regional efforts when it comes to uh, medical service integration. Um, the fire department um, has done some enhancements working with San Mateo County and the medical response being that the airport is actually in San Mateo County. Um, there's some uh, there's some factors in working with those mutual aid responders that was a little different. So there's already been great strides that's been made by the fire department in working through the triage efforts um, when we bring San Mateo County in to make sure that we're all working um, on the same sheet of music when we're triaging and transporting patients. Looking at our, our, our EPM, which is our Emergency Procedures Manual, um, we've actually completed that already. We brought in all the stakeholders and went through all of the phases of our um, Alert 3 aircraft crash responses and incorporated these lessons learned um, that we've developed, um, compiled that in our Emergency Procedures Manual and are submitting that to the FAA for approval and impl implementation. Better utilizing the JIC format in our public uh, information. Uh, one of the things that, that came out is I think a lot of agencies see in uh, accident response these days is the impact of social media. So obviously that was a big eye-opener for us and how important that is to incorporate social media and work with all of the, the different public information officers from the different agencies. Um, we saw some opportunities to improve there and put some of those measures into place. And business continuity, um, in alignment with the city, we had already, before the crash, had begun um, under uh, Director Martin's um, guidance, uh, developed uh, one of our Reaching for Number One uh, committees to work on business continuity, and we're finalizing those plans probably within the next uh, six months for a, a comprehensive business continuity plan. Uh, one of the, the big things um, that we saw that we're um, going to incorporate moving forward is uh, integration of a, a designated person in our EOC to coordinate uh, the medical operations aspect of emergency response. One thing that we struggled a little bit with was um, we had a pretty good idea of 
who was on the aircraft, but once they got triaged and, and transported to the different hospitals around the area, it took us longer than we had anticipated to identify where everyone had been transported to and get that um, information back and documented. So um, we are, are working on having a designated position in our EOC if we ever have this situation in the future to focus on this, work with the Red Cross, who um, we found out can be a huge resource um, in that liaison effort, as well as some of the, the federal agencies, the FBI, to get that information quicker. Utilizing the Customs and Border Protection, we realized that was a huge asset. There's tons of Customs and Border Protection staff on the airport. We want to utilize that resource in the future and incorporate them more into our plans. Uh, one unique aspect that uh, we didn't have in our, in our plans here was the fact that on this flight there was a large number of unaccompanied minors who were traveling um, on the aircraft. So um, once they had been transported, making sure that they had adequate uh, support, um, being that they didn't have um, a parent or guardian with them, was something we want to make sure that we improve upon and have um, a, multiple layers of support if we have that situation again and, and unaccompanied minors so that um, they, they feel that they have that support and comfort um, when they're in a different country or a different area um, without that parental support. And finally, uh, what we have done is um, one thing that we realized uh, that um, was a positive was the airlines and their alliance partners. So Asiana Airlines um, is an alliance partner with United Airlines. Obviously, as everyone's aware, United has a huge presence at San Francisco, and that really came into play in this accident. Asiana themselves didn't have a whole lot of staff actually at the airport to respond, uh, but United Airlines did, and because they have an alliance um, partnership with those two airlines, United stepped in virtually as Asiana Airlines to handle a lot of the uh, family and friends assistance efforts and support. Um, but we want to make sure that um, we have plans in place, and if there is an airline um, like these airlines on the right here who don't have alliance partners, we want to make sure that we really focus with those airlines, go over. Um, we've actually met with each one of the airlines on here um, to get a copy of their emergency plans um, and to review those to make sure that there's no gaps um, in those plans, particularly if they're an airline that doesn't have a lot of their own staff on the, air, on the airport here in San Francisco, and there's going to be a, a gap between the time that they can get their, their go teams or their response teams from their headquarters out here, um, that we, we understand what those limitations are, and we try to put some plans in place to bridge that gap until the more support can come in, uh, to the airport and care for their passengers um, in, the, in the event of an accident. Um, so that uh, covers um, our response efforts and uh, our actions moving forward. Um, out of that final report that our consultant put together, uh, we have a number of recommendations that we've developed uh, and placed on an action item log, and we're meeting uh, on a monthly basis to track the status until we've implemented all of those recommendations. Thank you. Rob? <clears throat> Thanks, Rob. Yes. Uh, first off, uh, let me... Uh, just give my compliments to uh, Director Martin, you and the rest of the staff, and please send my message of thanks to the whole EOC and all the partners out there. I think it's an incredible job. I think this report uh, reveals all the details you've been able to follow up on. had a couple of uh, questions. Um, uh, obviously, one, two, is, is to try to do as much as we can to prevent, and that may not be within the purview of this, but... I uh, want to know whether or not uh, the National Transportation Safety Board has completed everything that they were looking at 
and whether or not they have some additional recommendations, where, you know, whether it has to do with other airlines, their training, things like that. I'm interested in making sure we have a complete look at what the NTSB is focused on as well, because uh, we can do everything we can, but we, we need to always prevent this from happening too. So that's one issue that I'd like to maybe get an update is if the NTSB has completed everything that they have done and made some recommendations. I think the other is this past week, uh, we've all been exposed to the news of the uh, Mineta Airport. And, and clearly, uh, is that the next thing that we're challenged with is the perimeter safety of our airfields and whether or not that poses something that we need to take a look at. And I'd like to make sure everybody pays attention to that and uh, has a uh, uh, in our in our minds, a preparatory thing because it got there's nervous as to looking at these news reports of how vulnerable some of our airfields are, and I'm sure every airfield has now got to relook at every aspect of it to make sure it doesn't happen. Yes, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, to address your your first question, uh, we have been working very closely with the NTSB throughout their uh, investigation, uh, providing them all of the information they needed to complete their analysis. Um, we participated, the airport participated in the public hearing back in Washington, uh, D.C., and uh, Chief Carnes from the fire department um, was um, an integral part of presenting uh, to the NTSB. They have not issued their final uh, report as of yet, um, but we are in constant uh, contact with them um, to provide whatever information they need. Thank you. Excellent report. I just um, do have information on the hearing, Mr. Mayor. I'm understanding that the NTSB hearing will be held on June 24th back in Washington, D.C., and following that hearing will be the release of their report. Thank you. Uh, in regards to security, uh, yes, obviously um, that's uh, something when we see something in the industry happen like that, um, we go back and, and relook at our uh, security plans and our security posture, um, and we've done that um, at the airport uh, so far. Um, we actually had a meeting that uh, my boss uh, went to yesterday with all of the airport security coordinators from airports in the western region um, and spoke and talked about common practices and security postures. Um, we work closely with the TSA. Um, we have FBI presence at the airport. We're, we're going to convene with those uh, stakeholders uh, early next week. We've obviously sent out some information We're in the process of sending out some uh, information to all of our stakeholders at the airport to ensure that awareness is increased. Um, we have layers of, of security um, at the airport. And, you know, in addition to our fence lines, um, we have personnel that are out there. We have camera systems. So we have a number of ways um, to detect um, intrusions into the airport perimeter, um, and we're continuing to move, uh, move with that. We actually have just brought on a security consultant um, within the past month that's going to help us. And one of their, their high-priority projects was a perimeter intrusion detection system that would enhance our, our fence lines to put active monitoring on there. So if we did have someone that breached a fence line, we would get positive notification of that and be able to track that down. So we do have a number of initiatives that are, are in progress right now. I just address. wanted to make sure our, uh, if I wanted a free ride to the Hawaii, I would get caught. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best, and I think we have a pretty good, uh, pretty good system to, to catch you. So it'd probably be a better chance to just buy the ticket. <laughs> would certainly be more comfortable. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rob. Um, our next pre presentation is on the Earthquake Safety and Emergency Response Fund, and Brian Strong is going to be reporting along with 
Charles Higueras? Yes, that's right, Charles Higueras. Thank you, everyone. Uh, my name is Brian Strong. I'm the director of capital planning, and, and Charles Higueras is the project manager with Public Works for the uh, Earthquake Safety and Emergency Response Bond Program, or ESER. Uh, as we refer to it. Uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to come here. It was a little bit more than four years ago that we were here to talk about the first ESER bond, um, and, and we're happy to say that that went well, and, and we're glad to be back here again um, because it was always part of our original plan. It was always part of the concept that we would be uh, having to come back on multiple occasions to address critical first responder needs. Um, I don't, is there a clicker somewhere? So I, I don't think this is a surprise to anyone in this room. We are in earthquake country uh, in between two major earthquake faults. Uh, there's a, still a 63% uh, chance that we're going to have a 6.7 uh, earthquake or greater by, this is according to, uh, to FEMA USGS, by 2036. So we, we know preparation is critical. We're hoping that we're, we're going to be um, in a situation where when disasters come about, we are well prepared and we have infrastructure in place. Uh, timing is critical. Uh, we know, e even from a financial standpoint, the idea of investing in preventative um, measures to, is, is much more prudent than waiting until disasters happen. Um, we, we know that it's, it's going to help reduce property damage. We know there's a lot of business continuity that's coming up um, that's critical. So uh, it, overall resilience, uh, the time is to try to do this now um, to get this work done before these disasters happen. Uh, and finally, you know, uh, something I know a number of folks in here are on the Capital Planning Committee. Uh, when the mayor uh, was in his former position as city administrator, we created the Capital Plan in 2006, and it, and it was really to address critical infrastructure needs and priorities in a fiscally responsible way. Uh, and that's really been sort of the motto of doing it through the Capital Plan, and I think through the, through the current mayor, uh, is, is that we're making progress toward that that we're not only addressing some of our critical infrastructure like the Hall of Justice, which is seismically vulnerable and, ho and houses a number of first responders, but also our auxiliary water supply system and some of those other tools, fire stations, and, and now we're going to be also talking about police stations that play a critical role. Uh, and finally, mentioning uh, again that we're doing this with strong accountability uh, and keeping tax rates at current levels so that we're doing this in a fiscally prudent and responsible way. And having said that, I will pass it on to Charles to talk a little bit about what's in the program. So, good afternoon, everyone. Um, happy to come to you this afternoon to talk a little bit more about our ESCR to remind you of what we're uh, undertaking and accomplishing. ESCR 2014 and 2010 are both operating from two prime drivers, the first of which is clearly to provide facilities that are effective at housing and allowing the deployment of personnel and equipment to respond to calls for service. And that's certainly true throughout the year, but especially important around the matter of a major uh, <laughs> event uh, or catastrophe that should, should occur here in the city. Um, in that regard, then, the second um, element of importance is uh, allowing us to find the vehicle, the mechanism by which we begin to remove uh, folks from the Hall of Justice. As you know, the Hall of Justice is not a um, facility that we would re expect to remain operable 
um, or occupiable after a major seismic event. And so what to do with everyone who currently resides at the hall after a major seismic event? Well, we're hoping to anticipate uh, the arrival of that big earthquake and uh, remove everyone we can from uh, the building uh, before that event. Certainly in both ESER 2010 and ESER 14, we are making quite a bit of improvement or headway into that proposition. Easter 2010, uh, the public, uh, I should say, the public safety building is uh, accomplishing the uh, relocation of police command as well as Southern Station. Um, it also is uh, on the side of the fire department is providing a new fire station for the Mission Bay area uh, to be known as Fire Station 4. It is well, it is well removing from another seismically suspect building um, the um, facility out on Evans. We're relocating the arson task force to the rehabilitated fire station number, four, uh, number 30, historic number 30. Um, next slide, please. Okay, so these are the projects arrayed uh, throughout ESER 2014. Um, several of these, of course, are akin to what I mentioned as part and parcel of that strategy to move folks out of the Hall of Justice, but included as well within that rubric uh, are the medical examiner facility, as well as police, um, motorcycle police, and uh, the crime lab or elements of forensic services that continue to uh, reside at the hall. Uh, and the total, of course, is $400 million. Um, under ESA 2010, we have been accomplishing dozens of projects, uh, certainly between uh, the AWSS uh, under the management of PUC and neighborhood fire stations under the management of DPW. We have been making quite a bit of uh, headway into uh, beginning to overcome the deficit condition found in both um, areas. Uh, we will have uh, addressed 23 fire stations uh, through ESA 2010, and we expect through ESA 2014 to have addressed the balance of stations not yet touched. Um, we certainly have much more need and dollars uh, than either bond measure is bringing to us, but uh, we are making quite a bit of advance in ensuring the viability of those places uh, that, as I mentioned before, are critical for the effective deployment of personnel and equipment. Um, the arguable jewel in the crown, depending on whether you talk to fire or police, is the public safety building, although Largely, the area dedicated is for the sake of police command. As I mentioned earlier, fire station number four, brand new fire station, is also part of this project. Uh, it's well underway, and we are anticipating its completion uh, later this year. In fact, it may be um, okay to mention that we expect a ribbon cutting to occur on November 3rd. November 3rd. <laughs> and uh, we, so we invite you all to come on out and to mark that day down on your calendar. We would expect to actually uh, offer it up for public tour at that time. And the actual move-in of, of all the occupants would occur subsequent to that date. Very excited about that. If you need or would like uh, additional information on Easter 2010 or 2014, um, it's sfearthquakesafety.org. Thank you. One other item just to mention is that I think a lot of – we want to make sure that – and this is a special message to our partners as well as department heads that are here that we don't take this bond for granted. The last Easter bond in 2010 did pass it with 78 or 79 percent of the vote. We know that was, um, that was historic. We think a lot of that had to do with the great messaging and getting out to folks. We also know that there were two major earthquakes, Haiti and Chile, that had happened during that same time, so it was, it was high on everyone 
everyone's um, consciousness when when that uh, election was going on. So we're not looking for any major disasters to help this bond, uh, but we are. But we're hoping that that you know we're that people keep it in their mind and they don't forget this election is going to be in June. Um, and, and that you, you keep getting the word out and letting people know about it. And, and we're certainly here to answer questions or come to speak to groups uh, if needed. So. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Charles. Um, we're now going to be treated to a very quick um, introduction to SF72 by Francis Zamora, who's our public information officer here at DEM. All right, I'm going to treat you guys to a quick video. One thing that kind of encapsulates San Francisco to me is when I go to the Castro Theater. They have that old organ, and it plays before the movie, and the last song is always, San Francisco, open your golden gates, and the whole place is clapping and singing. It's like we're cheering our city on. My name is Reverend Dr. Karen Olavito. I am pastor at Glad Memorial Church in the Tenderloin, and I've been a pastor in San Francisco since 1989. I am trained to be present with people in the midst of crisis, help them connect with others, be with them, and then help them get the help they need. If there was a disaster, I think Glide would be a community hub. This is a sanctuary. People could find a place to stay so that they would be out of the elements. It's why places like Glide are so important now, so that we learn from each other, we develop relationships with each other. So in crisis, we're already trusting each other to get through it together. The human family extends far beyond what most of us want to see. And that has become so much a part of San Francisco. This is our city. Let's get connected. Well, good afternoon, and we're very excited to talk to everyone about SF72 today and to share it with you. Um, the first thing I want to point out that is SF72 is more than just a fresh new website or a beautiful set of portfolios that you have before you. It's actually a shift in the way we talk about preparedness with our community. Instead of focusing on disaster and the things you must do so bad things won't happen to you, uh, we focus on something more powerful, more important, and that's the power of community. Of course, preparedness is about getting your supplies together, but it's also about knowing your neighbors, lending a hand, and sharing knowledge. Why? Because past emergencies, from Sandy to Tohoku, have proved that strong, connected communities are more resilient. So let's take a look at one of the platforms that we have uh, that we're using to help build a more resilient San Francisco. SF72.org. This is our digital platform. It provides tools and support to people to help them connect to their neighbors as well as prepare for emergencies. We launched this website on October 17th of last year, the uh, 24th anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake. And uh, it consists of four primary sections. Get connected, gather supplies, make a plan, and in an emergency. So let's, uh, let's take a look at one of these sections here. The first one is uh, Get Connected, and 
really what this does, it, it provides resources for people to connect with neighbors through traditional and digital networks. And so we know the bottom line here is we want people to connect with their community in ways that are comfortable for them. One of the ways people get connected is through digital networks. Digital networks, and so that's Facebook, Twitter, Nextdoor. Um, oftentimes in emergencies we find people are sharing their status updates on Facebook. Uh, you know, hey, I'm doing okay, I'm fine, I'm here at this location. And we think that's great. So why not try to capture that ahead of time, before an emergency, so people can talk about how they're going to share resources, how they can share supplies, how they can share information. Um, Anne mentioned earlier that last week, on the eve of the 1906 anniversary, we announced a partnership with Nextdoor. That is a neighborhood-centric uh, social network. And so we're excited about that partnership because SF72 is about building strong communities, and so is Nextdoor. So with this partnership, what we hope to do is get people to start talking about within their Nextdoor communities what they would share with each other in the event of an emergency, whether it's a generator, a grill, or even skills like I can babysit or cook for a lot of people. We know that not everybody connects digitally, and again, we want to make sure that people connect in ways that are comfortable for them, so we encourage people to connect with their neighbors, whether it's at the gym, whether it's at the market, but, or whether it's with their neighborhood association. And we also encourage people to work with our partners. Our partners at the American Red Cross, Neighborhood Empowerment Network, NERT, ALERT, the, Internet, uh, the Interfaith Council. And those are also organizations that are focused on building strong communities and focused on preparedness. So we want to make sure we have resources for them as well. The next section is gather supplies. And this is really the educational component of SF72. And the key takeaway here is we want people to know they're more prepared than they think they are. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not necessarily about going to the store and dropping a lot of money to buy an emergency earthquake kit. If you want to do that, that's great. But we want people to know that a lot of the stuff they have is probably in their house already, and it's just a matter of gathering those supplies and having them in a, an accessible area. So this section is kind of broken down into uh, three things, essential, useful, and personal. Essential things like water, first aid kit, flashlight. Most of us have those things around our house. Useful, cash, radio, warm clothes, things like that. And personal. Now, when it comes to emergencies, it's not just about surviving. It's also about having the ability to cope and being comfortable. I have a colleague, actually, that keeps chocolate in her emergency kit because that's something that's going to make her feel more comfortable. So if chocolate's your thing or something else or candy is your thing, put it in your supplies. <clears throat> Going along with the community-connected theme, we also encourage people to think about what they may want to share with their neighbors. So whether that's a grill, generator, or skills like babysitting. Yes, wine is up there. <laughs> Make a plan. This is, a, this, is, this is just a great resource for people where they can get tips on what should they should include in their plan, and they can download one and send it with their friends and family as well. It's, it's, again, it's all about connecting. Finally, the last section I want to get into is in an emergency. So 
So in an emergency is our essentially provides real-time information about what's going on in the event of some type of emergency happening in San Francisco. In the event of a major emergency like an earthquake or tsunami, this becomes SF-72's homepage. So what, you're, what do you see right here? This is essentially a status map of San Francisco, and it's something that we developed with Google.org. Google.org heard about what we were doing with SF-72, called us up and said, hey, how can we help? And we talked to them, we worked out a few things, and they developed this uh, crisis map, essentially, for us pro bono. Um, and so what you're looking at right now is there's a live feed of 511, so that's the current traffic situation in San Francisco. So if anyone's trying to get on the bridge right now, it's not a good idea. Hmm. You can see the red going on over there. But let's say, for example, we have an earthquake or a tsunami. Uh, we have a connection to the Red Cross's U.S. shelter feed. So if the Red Cross starts opening up shelters in San Francisco, they're going to automatically populate onto that map, and people will know where to go. We can also place things on this map as well if we want people to stay away from a certain area or if we're you know, setting evacuation areas for a tsunami. Um, finally, this is not just something that we are reusing you know, in a major disaster. We're actually using it right now. Uh, when we send out our tweets about stay away from 4th and King due to police activity, that's included in the link. It's, it's, we're working through the process of including in the link. It's, it's included sometimes. <laughs> There's still training going on on how to use the... the yes, platform. exactly. And so it's, it's getting people used to seeing that information come up. Um, finally, this area also has some of our updates, includes our Twitter feed. And it also includes our partners' Twitter feeds. So a lot of you guys that are in this room, we're sharing those updates that you guys put out, as well as the Twitter feed from 511.org. Um, with that said, that is SF72 in a, in, in a nutshell. Um, you guys have some uh, reports in there and some packets. There's this portfolio. Well, you can take home and take a look through it. A lot of the information in SF72.org is in this portfolio. It's also designed so you can hang it up in your office or in your cubicle and people can ask you about it, kind of get the conversation going. Um, and so with that said, we all encourage you to check out sf72.org and share it with your families and friends. Thank you. Thanks, Francis. Uh, we're all very excited about SF-72. We also have, there is a handout, if you want to pick it up, Bay 72, which just talks about, it's a presentation that's for the UASI, actually, but it talks about what we're doing with the same concept in the whole Bay Area region. Um, our next quick uh, presentation is from, it's our community partner update, and we wanted to introduce the new CEO of the American Red Cross Bay Area chapter. Um, Mark and Mark, pronounce your last name. Coutier. So Coutier. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and I, thank I will you. respond to any pronunciation of it. Um, <laughs> it's a real honor and pleasure to be here with all of you. I've been in this role now for 10 months and actually in the process of joining the organization. The organization was in a major reorganization about how it delivers disaster services. Um, one of the, the simpler changes is, I'll use Asiana Air Crash as an example. In the old model, we would have to report up through our national organization, 
now we have been resourced and, and organized to move vertically so that instead of us coordinating upwards, we're coordinating with you. And as a part of that, we instituted a new uh, disaster uh, uh, operations uh, system, which is very akin to an incident command system, which is better position us to take feedback from you and our other partners and has reduced our time on scene by 20 minutes. The other part of reengineering is it's caused us to refocus on the whole disaster cycle from preparedness to response to recovery. And for those of you who may have uh, been involved uh, over the years, we started with the Prepare the Bay Area program, and this continues to our Ready Neighborhoods programs where we focus on low-income communities across the Bay Area to build their resilience and their their ability to withstand the first 72 hours and to be partners when it comes time to open shelters and feed people. And I just want to remind you that the power of the Red Cross really is its volunteers. We have 3,000 volunteers who are trained in the Bay Area that in the, the case of a disaster can help us open shelters, can feed people, can provide emergency medical, emergency nursing, mental health services, connect them to their families across the country, and that we stand as a partner to actually be the Army in the response. And lastly, uh, we have been much more successful, and we're looking to improve on this, to, to respond to daily incidents. In San Francisco County alone, we responded to 80 incidents over the past nine months. Uh, we've served 1,100 individuals and 255 families, mostly in single and multi-unit fires, where we come in, we go with the fire department with our partner, Chief Hayes White, and work with the families to get them housed, get them income, get them replacement for their clothes, and get them restabilized. So we look forward to building our partnerships, and thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak. Thank you. I guess we can still say you're new for two more months, right? The first year, the honeymoon period. Uh, well, welcome to our Disaster Council. Um, this comes to the point in the program, we're not at a round table, but it's the round table discussion. So is there, are there any um, updates, comments? I know, Michael, you had something, Michael Pappas. Greetings, everyone. Uh, on Wednesday of this coming week, we're going to be working with our partners. The San Francisco Interfaith Council is going to be working with our partners on de from Department of Emergency Management, American Red Cross Bay Area Chapter, uh, San Francisco Community Agencies Responding to Disaster, Human Services Agency, um, to offer the fifth biennial uh, disaster preparedness workshop for congregations. And unlike the other four, which have concentrated on uh, catastrophic disasters, these are going to be looking at the role of the faith community in responding to everyday disasters, in particular fires. Uh, we would welcome you. There's, there's uh, a a circular in your packets. If you'd like to register, you're welcome to come. It's a half day. It's free. Uh, we also are going to be working with the Bay Share uh, Sharing Economy at uh, Director Cronenberg's suggestion. Thank you. Thank you. Any other um, comments, announcements? Yes, Brian. I, this will be very quick. Um, my name is Brian Whitlow. I'm executive director of SF Card. Um, if you can't attend the conference, we will be having a Twitter feed. So if you're big on social media, hashtag it's SF 
IC DPW 2014. So you know, follow along, and at 10:20 is when our neighborhood tabletop discussion. So that's where the, the, a lot of action is going to take place. So thank you. Cool. Any other announcements? Is there any public comment? Thank you all for coming. Uh, this meeting is adjourned.